Thank you, Brittany and Carol, for reading God's Word with us. And uh, if I don't know you, my name is Andrew Jones. I'm the campus pastor here uh, at the Leewood campus. And uh, if, you know, if you do know me, you, uh, you won't be surprised. I want to start us off on a little bit of a, of a depressing note, so just uh, bear with me there. Oh, oh, and by the way, before I forget, I know there are a lot of young kiddos in here maybe today. Um, parents, it's going to be okay. Uh, you're going to make it. And noise and movement is okay, so just don't stress about it. Um, all right, now the depressing part. So uh, is there, I was, uh, it'll be, become clear to you why in a minute, why I'm bringing this up, but is, is there a worse feeling in the world than regret? I think it's kind of an underrated negative emotion. I spend a lot of my time focusing on avoiding fear or failure or anxiety, but not enough time avoiding regret. <laughs> uh, it's that feeling you get, right, when you've made a choice, you've made a decision, you've made a mistake that you can't undo. It's the worst feeling in the world. And we all have a memory. We all have a moment uh, in time. Some of them are more serious. Some of them are a little lighter. But even today, when you think about them, they make you feel sick. And uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I had one of my first big life decisions in middle school. And it was, do I keep playing basketball or do I keep playing piano? I can't do both at the same time. And uh, I tried to think through which of these two is going to stick with me for a lifetime. Which of these is a good investment over the long haul? Uh, and so I chose basketball, of course. <laughs> because I'm an idiot. And uh, I'm still mad at my parents for letting me do that because that's what parents are for. Parents are there to tell you, no, basketball is not a part of your long-term future, Andrew. It's going to be, you should choose the piano. Um, and uh, this one still really gets me. I was, uh, and I'm not, I'm not kidding, this one still really, I, I feel awful about it. I was officiating my friend's wedding about a year ago, and they did what's called a wine box ceremony, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, but basically, you have a, a box as a part of the ceremony. It has a bottle of wine in it, and you, you write each other a letter the day of your wedding, and you seal it, and you put it in the box, and you, you, uh, you don't look at it until your fifth anniversary. So they're doing, they're in the middle of doing that. And I'm, I'm the efficient, right? So I'm explaining what this is to everyone because no one knows what this is yet. Uh, and I said, I'm trying to explain it, right? So they're going to open this on their fifth anniversary. And I said, I hope, I hope they make it that long. <laughs> yeah, I said that, yeah. And they did what you just did. It was kind of a mix of ha and ugh, right? <laughs> And I start to, I say, no, 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 I mean the, you know, the box, you know, they're going to, they're going to, don't open the box, or, but it's too late. By this. It's, it's. And I'll never forget looking at his wife's face as I'm turning three shades of red, I'm sure, and it's, it still makes me queasy to think about, because uh, I'm now forever the guy who said at his friend's wedding, I hope they make it that long, which... Okay, so any aspiring pastors out there, this is just a, this is a free, free bit of advice. Uh, don't go off your notes for weddings or funerals. Weddings and funerals, do not go off your notes. It's a huge mistake. It never works out. But don't, if, you're, if you're, actually though, if you're trying to get married though, I'd love to do your wedding. Don't let that stop you. <laughs> I'm always available. Don't, don't be afraid to ask. <laughs> One of the, actually one of my, one of my worst um, that I remember uh, was from elementary school, right? It goes, it goes back that far. Um, I was very, uh, maybe you'll relate, I was very jealous of this other kid in my grade. Uh, he was, you know, smarter, better looking. The girl I liked, liked him, and I knew it. 
And it made, it's just, I, there's, for whatever reason, there was just one day it made me so mad that that was happening. And me and my friends, we just followed him around at recess and we just made fun of him mercilessly for like 20 minutes uh, in front of his friends, in front of everyone. And I, I mean, it was really upsetting him. I could tell it was working. And about, no, no, it's not good. Because the next week, I found out that that very day after school, he found out that his dad had cancer. Right? And that's one of the, right? And I, I've got way worse than that. I'm sure you do too. But there's this regret thing. It sticks with you. It doesn't go away. I, I will never forget that. It haunts, regret does, like nothing else can do. And it lasts forever. And when I think about those times in my life that I regret the most, um, what I want to do, and maybe you've thought this too, is I want to build a time machine and I want to go back in time and I just want to slap that version of myself and say, don't do what you're doing. Stop now. It's not worth it. And I don't know if I need to talk to someone about that because I fantasize about that, but that's what I want to do. And, but think about it. How awesome would it be? How great would it be if in the middle of life we got these warnings along the way? We got this whisper in our ear. We got this uh, inner sense this reminder that, there's, that uh, we, uh, in the middle of the chaos of life, before we make our worst decisions, there's a warning, don't do this. There's a sense in which, and here's why I bring all of that up, there's a sense in which our story in Matthew today, he wants it to be that kind of a warning. He wants it to be a slap. He wants it to be a whisper in your ear. He wants it to be a reminder that there's one choice in our lives, more than any other choice, it's more important than everything else we can do. And if we miss this moment, we will regret it forever. And in the last few chapters of Matthew, which we've been in for quite some time, Matthew's been making the case in every single story, Jesus is the one true king. And his reign is unlike any reign of any kingdom you've ever seen on earth. He's the only one who can give you the design and the empowerment for the life you're designed to live. And because he's the true king, He's the only one worth following. Matthew's been hammering this home every single week. That's why we called this series Following the King. And as we conclude that series today, so this is our last sermon in Matthew until the beginning of next year in January. We need to hear Matthew's warning. We need to pay attention. We need to take it seriously. And the real heart of this message of this text, which I promise we're going to get to in just a minute, is this, there's only so much time we have to follow this king. There's only so much time to, avoid, to, uh, to follow him, to obey him, to choose him, to avoid this failure, to, this regret of a lifetime. And, and time's running out, so don't miss him. Don't miss this king, okay? If you haven't turned to Matthew yet, do that now. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 29. Uh, if you, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, uh, chapter 20. Verse 29, and uh, let me just frame this for you. You heard it read, but it was a while ago, so let me just frame this for you a little bit. Matthew kind of has us as the reader uh, in this crowd following Jesus. We're in the crowd. He's in front of us, and we're following him. And he's, Matthew tells us he's just made it to Jericho, uh, and there's a whole throng of people that are surrounding him, and he gets into this major city. Jericho is a very important city, and my hunch is, Matthew doesn't say this, but my hunch is that there's music, there's hooting and hollering. There's uh, people, uh, the entire town of Jericho is out on the porch. They're in the street. They're looking out the window to see this Jesus of Nazareth passing by. Because Jesus at this point 
is a household name in the whole country of Israel. Right after an incredible, after all the incredible things he's done over the last few years of his ministry, and, and you've heard some of them if you've been here, his healings, feeding the 5,000, raising people from the dead, challenging religious authorities, gathering a, a huge following of disciples. It was impossible not to have heard about him. He is big news. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the capital itself. And Jericho, if you know your Old Testament, this city where the story takes place. It's a very important city. It's the first city taken by Joshua and the Hebrews in the Old Testament when they go in to take the promised land. It's the last city that you hit on your way up to Jerusalem, about a 3,000-foot uh, height difference. Jerusalem's way up on the mountain. You enter Jericho. It's your last stop, right? It's, 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 it's like next stop, uh, Jerusalem, when you get into Jericho. And this crowd following Jesus, uh, surrounding him, gawking at him, uh, they want to be there when Jesus enters Jerusalem. They want to be there. They want to see the fanfare. They want to see the glory. Because if Jesus is the real deal, and there, I know there are many in the crowd who might not quite be there yet, but if he is, they want to see him go to Jerusalem. They want to tell their kids, and they want to tell their grandkids, I was there when Messiah went to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans and to free us from oppression. We would do the same thing. We would, we would want to see it. Now, what we know is that Jesus isn't going to Jerusalem to conquer Rome. He is going to Jerusalem to be conquered by Rome, to submit to public execution on a cross, no less. That's why he's adamant. That's why he has to make it to Jerusalem. We know that, but the crowd doesn't yet. And anyway, there's this huge crowd just rolling through Jericho. And, and Matthew has us kind of caught up in the crowd. We're, we're moving with them. And then in verse 30, Matthew says, Behold, two blind men on the side of the road. And behold isn't something we say in English a whole lot anymore. So maybe a better way of saying it is Matthew says, Look, look over there. Two blind men. So you look over at the roadside as the crowd is just leaving town, and there are these two blind beggars there. Now, that's not surprising. There are always beggars on this road. Like I said, last stop to Jerusalem, lots of foot traffic up to Jerusalem. It's a great prime spot for begging, lots of pilgrims on their way. And let's face it, if you were blind in the first century and you had to rely on the pity of other people and just to survive, you would put yourself on the road to Jerusalem too. You'd want to catch the religious crowd on their way up to worship because it's, it's easy picking. So you put yourself there too. It's a great spot. Now remember, these two guys are blind, so they can hear the ruckus of what's happening in Jericho, but they cannot see it. They don't know who's there. They don't know what's happening. They have to ask someone what's going on. Matthew says, when they heard it was Jesus, they cried out. They screamed right then and there, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd, probably the crowd nearest to them, rebukes them. They say, be quiet. Stop talking. Leave him alone. Jesus has a big moment. This is his big moment right now. He's about to go into Jerusalem. We're celebrating what he's doing. You're ruining this for everybody, so be quiet. And it's easy to look at that and think, what a bunch of jerks, but I, I wanted to kind of put us in the place of the crowd. So the only equivalent I could think of is, you guys remember when the uh, Royals won the World Series? Do you remember that, when that happened? Okay, good. Um, the whole city was out celebrating. Uh, the K Kansas City economy took a major hit because no one was at work that day, if you remember. Um, and they were, remember, they were driving in their Toyota-sponsored trucks or whatever. 
and the cameras were on them as they drove by. And this was their big moment. And what if, in the middle of that on live TV, a homeless person ran up to Eric Hosmer's truck and started asking him for money? Hey, Eric, I know you're doing really well right now, so, you know, throw some my way. (laughs) If we saw that, we might not say it, but we probably would think it like, stop, you're ruining this. This is not the time. There's another time for this. This is Eric's big moment. Leave him alone. He's been waiting his whole life for this. We would probably do that. I think that's kind of what's happening here. But these two guys, they do not care at all. Social convention out the window. Because they keep on screaming all the more. They get louder the more they're told to be quiet. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Because they know who Jesus is. They know what he's capable of. No doubt they have heard of his healings, many of whom were of the blind, So they start begging, but not for money. They are pleading for their lives. They are pleading for dignity, for wholeness, for health, for their livelihood in the first century. This is everything to them, and they know this is their one shot, and they do not want to miss it. Now, that's not really that surprising. What is surprising amidst all of this chaos and noise of the moment is that Jesus stops. And in my mind, I picture the crowd kind of keeps moving and Jesus stops and they lose track of him. Where did he go? He stops. Now just think about that. Put yourself in the story. We know Jesus has stopped, but the blind men don't. They can't see him. So I imagine the crowd gets quiet and the blind men have got, they've got to be wondering, did this, what's happening? <laughs> did it work? Is he coming over to us? Is, could this possibly be working? And the next thing they hear is the voice of Jesus himself, and he's talking to them. And he says this, what do you want me to do for you? Which is an odd question, isn't it? Uh, uh, Jesus, isn't a little obvious what we want from you? But they don't care. Lord, let our eyes be open, they say. Open our eyes. And he doesn't say a word to them in response. So the next thing that happens for them is they feel his hands touch their eyes. And immediately, says Matthew, their eyes are opened and they can see. And the way Matthew tells it, he doesn't give a lot of detail here. The way he tells it, it's like they open their eyes and they see Jesus standing there. And I've got to imagine he's happy for them, so he smiles. And then it's like he turns and keeps going to Jerusalem because he's, he's on a mission. He's got to get, he's got to get there. Now, just, I can't imagine, what, however, what that moment must have been like, right? Seeing for the first time ever or for the first time in a really long time. Maybe this is the first time these two guys have ever seen each other. Who knows how long they've been together. But they don't waste any time on the roadside anymore. I I imagine they both have this realization at the same time. Okay, why would we stay here? There's nothing for us here. Let's follow him. Matthew says, immediately they get up and they follow after him. And that's the end of the story. It's a great little story. I like it a lot. But it's kind of random. It's, it's, it's bizarre. And you're probably not picking up on it because one of the problems uh, of preaching through Matthew one passage at a time is it's really easy to lose the big picture flow of what Matthew's doing. So he wrote this story as one story. It was really designed to be read in one sitting, all of Matthew. And sometimes I wonder if he showed up here on a Sunday morning, if he would slap his forehead if I told him. What we did, though is we took your story and we split it up over a year with a four-month break in between. And he'd be like, whoa, whoa, 
You did my life's work? You did what to my life's work? <laughs> and say, sorry. There's a reason for why we do it this way. So, but he, here's why it, it's awkward. Let me just tell you. When, when you look at what surrounds this story, so right before this in chapter 20 and right after in chapter 21, you see how odd the placement is. It doesn't fit. Last week, Jesus said to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop us. And it's going to get really ugly when we get there. And then right after the story, in chapter 21, Jesus gets on a donkey. He rides into Jerusalem. And it's really, for him, the beginning of the end. All roads lead to the cross. Only enemies from then on out. And the story, the, the way Matthew writes, really dramatically changes. And between those two things, the decision to go to Jerusalem and actually entering the city is this little story about two blind men. And as cool as the story is, if you've been with us in Matthew, you've got to be kind of like, well, yeah, been there, done that. We've had so many stories of healing in this book. Do we really need another one? No doubt there are countless stories of Jesus healing people that Matthew does not include because there's, it would take too much time. Paper's very expensive at this time. Why burn a page on this? Why interrupt? If you are writing a, the story, why interrupt the tension you're building between of, of getting to Jerusalem. It's just, this feels like a distraction. And the second you ask the question, but why would Matthew put this here? He's got you. That's what he wants you to ask. Because now, to make sense of it, you've got to look at the details and you've got to start pulling them together. So number one, Jericho. Last stop before Jerusalem. It's the last chance to get to Jesus before the authorities do. Two men who stop at nothing to get to him, despite, all the, despite everything working against them. The timing is bad, right? Jesus is almost out of, it says he's leaving Jericho. He's almost out of earshot by the time they get his attention. Bad manners. You're not supposed to interrupt the Messiah on his way to the holy city, okay? Everything's working against him. Bad odds. What are the chances that Jesus actually stops to listen to you? Others, if you were to read on in the book of Matthew, you would notice this is the last time he performs a healing, Jesus performs a healing of anyone. This is it. And perhaps most importantly, this is the absolute last time in the book of Matthew that anyone will turn and follow him as a disciple. This is the last time anyone says, you are my king and I will follow you. This is it. So what, all that, all that to say, what is Matthew doing? Why is this here? This story is screaming at us, last chance. This is it. If you miss it, you'll regret it. Don't miss this king. Like these two blind beggars, let nothing stop you. Let nothing get in your way. Following him is everything. And as we reflect on this warning from Matthew, this slap in the face, this whisper in our ear, to avoid regret, what I want to do, that you can see at least three warnings in here from Matthew. Warnings of obstacles that get in our way when we come to Jesus. The beggars don't let them get in their way, but we might not. So here they are. Number one, warning number one from this story. Don't let anyone stop you from getting to Jesus. Don't let anyone else stop you. This is a theme throughout Matthew, but it, 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 it comes, he brings it back here. There are many barriers to Jesus you will encounter in your life. But other people's opinion of you, 
social conventions are a, are a big one. What other people and their opinion of you. The beggars have a lot working against them on this specific front, right? They're at the bottom of the social ladder. They're the last people you'd introduce to a king. And nobody close to Jesus thinks that they are worthy of his time and attention. The story makes that very clear. And I know there are some of you here who, when you put yourself in this story as the blind men, you say, if, if that's me, the crowd is right. There's just no way I'm worthy of his time, his attention, his affection. Too many regrets, too many mistakes. Or perhaps uh, people have been discounting you your whole life. You're always on the outside looking in. You're never acceptable to the crowd at work, at school, with, own, with your own family. You're the black sheep. You're the screw-up. I, I also know there are people here who want to follow Jesus and want to grow in their relationship with him, but your fear of going public with it is, keeping, is holding you back. Because what would, pe- what would people think? What would my coworkers say? Or my friends, my classmates, my professors, what would they say if they knew I was a Christian? And perhaps your, your walk with him can't deepen because you're afraid to go public. You're unwilling to shout in the street, have mercy on me. And perhaps worst of all, some of us here I know, we have been the crowd for other people. We cannot miss all throughout Matthew that those closest to Jesus, his disciples, his adoring fans, the people who talk to him and are with him every single day are often the first to shoo people away from him. Leave him alone. Over and over, Jesus has to remind his disciples in this book, no, 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 let the children come to me no, 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 I'm going to talk to this Canaanite woman. I know it weirds you out, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's okay. I know they're Gentiles, and you want to send them home after I preach to them, but you give them something to eat. Don't send them away. Over and over to his disciples. Much more than Jesus' enemies, Jesus' friends are the worst offenders here. And sometimes we count people out. We lose faith and hope that certain kinds of people can follow him that he wants anything to do with them. But whether you find yourself on the outside looking in because of choices you've made or because of how people look at you, you aren't successful or popular in the the world's eyes, what I want to say to you is that's exactly why you are perfect for this kingdom. Don't forget, Jesus loves the outsider and he loves the long shot. The blind, the unclean, the children, the foreigner, the prisoner, the immigrant, he loves to put last people first. And it's often the outsider, whoever truly understands Jesus as he is anyway. I mean, look at the irony of this story. The crowd doesn't know who Jesus is. It takes two blind, broken men who can't see him to say, you are the son of David. They get it. And no one else does. So don't miss this king because you think you're unworthy. The fact that you know you're unworthy makes you perfect to ask for his mercy. The crowd may dismiss you. It may. And where we have been the crowd, church, we have to repent. The crowd may dismiss you, but Jesus never will. He never will. But there's another warning in this story, and it's perhaps even more dangerous than, than the first one, okay? Warning number two, don't let you stop you from getting to him. 
You see, after the blind men, they make it past the crowd. They fight through the people and the opinions. They get to Jesus, but there's one more barrier he has to address. You see, we can come to Jesus, we can get to him, but we can do it for all the wrong reasons. And you see this really in Jesus' question to them. What do you want me to do for you? And let's face it, on its face of that question, it's absurd. It's an absurd question. It might even be offensive. Like, really? Okay, Sherlock, have you noticed I can't see you? Let's start with that. Thanks. I mean, that's a hurt, it's almost a hurtful question. What do you want me to do for you? But Jesus, he, notice, he will ask a version of that question to many people who approach him. Many people, many times. What do you want from me, really? What do you really want? Do you want me to fix one little part of your life, or can you give me the whole thing? Do you want healing for one problem, or can I, can I have everything you've got? Do you want something from me, or do you want me? And notice the contrast with the previous story in chapter 20. Verse 21, Jesus asks James and John's mother the same question. What do you want? If you were here last week, you know her answer. I want prestige and power and glory for my two sons. Jesus, can you give me that? The blind men ask for sight which in the Bible is a metaphor for faith. To see Jesus as he really is. Right? Their answer to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. They're not asking just for a physical healing. They're asking for spiritual insight. They're asking for the gift of faith. And he gives it to them. And you know he does because the first thing they do is they turn and they follow him with everything they have. There's a sense in which you are your own biggest obstacle to following him. Think of the rich young ruler in chapter 19. He comes to Jesus and says, I'll do anything to get eternal life. What do I need to do? I'll do anything. And Jesus says, okay, go home, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. You know how that story ends? The, rich, the ruler leaves sorrowful because he can't do it. He says, the problem is, Jesus, I want that stuff more than I want you. I can't do that. And Jesus knew it. So what do you want more than following this king? You want healing in a part of your life, but not another. God, help me with my marriage or my, or my financial situation, but don't deal, with my, don't deal with my work. That's for me. My ambition at work. Do you want him to give you eyes to see yourself as you really are? Warts and all. Or do you just want an easier life? I just want a blessed life from you and then I'll be on my way. What do you really want? And there will be many times in your walk with Jesus that he will ask a version of that question to you. And if your answer to that question is anything other than Jesus himself, there's an area of your life that you are letting you stop you from following this king. Final warning. Warning number three, don't let tomorrow stop you from getting to Jesus, right? Think about it. If there's one common thread to 90% of our stories of regret, what is it? I'll do it tomorrow. I'll take care of it tomorrow. I'll say I love you tomorrow. I'll call you tomorrow. I'll think more about it tomorrow. Notice these blind men, immediately they follow after Jesus. 
They don't wait to think it over, to talk it through. They make a decision and they go. And the immediacy of following Jesus is all over Matthew's gospel. And it's easy to come to church for years and never truly make a decision about Jesus. It's really easy to do, to put it off, to make excuses, to think, you know, I'll do that, I'll do that on Monday or when my life slows down or when my kids' schedules ease up or whatever it is. Think about it. The illusion of more time is one of the most deceptive lies we tell ourselves every single day. There's more time. Who says? The time for obedience and faith is always now. Jesus, right, get back in the story. He's passing by. He's on his way out of town. And the blind men know it and they act immediately. This is the picture Matthew wants us to have. Don't put this off. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Today is what you have. Follow him now. And it doesn't have to look perfect. It won't. That's not the point. Decide now. Will you follow him to Jerusalem? Or will you let him pass you by? Are you content to remain blind so that you can take your time? Or will you seize the moment to see for the first time. Okay, there's one more thing I want us to see in this story. It's not a warning, but I think it's actually the most important part of the story. I think it's actually at the heart of why it's here at all. And here, here it is. It's so clear that Jesus will stop at nothing to get to Jerusalem, right? Even though he knows he's going to his death for chapters and chapters on end, Jesus has been talking about this moment, getting to Jerusalem, and all throughout his story, nothing gets in his way. Satan himself in the temptation, the beginning of Matthew, cannot get in his way. Satan says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world without a cross. Choose me, not it. And Jesus says, no. Peter can't stop him. When he says, Messiahs don't get crucified, Jesus, you might want to change your thinking on that. He says, get behind me. The Pharisees can't stop him. Rejection, persecution, opposition, his friends, his enemies. There's nothing more important to Jesus than getting to Jerusalem as fast as he can, except two blind beggars on the side of the road on the outskirts of of Jericho, you see. Despite everything on his mind and in his world, at this moment, When Jesus hears a cry for mercy, he stops. And he always will. Always. The only thing Jesus stops for in this story is you. He will stop for you. And it's not yet too late. It's not. As long as there's a day called today, the invitation of this king stands for you. It doesn't matter how other people see you, what they think about you, what they say about you, how they label you. It doesn't matter what choices you've made, what regrets fill your mind and your heart. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church without making this choice. And all it takes is this simple cry, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he will stop. There's mercy available today. For everyone here. There he is. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's almost out of town. Don't let him pass you by. 
Call out to him, and he will answer you. Let's pray to him now. Father, we we thank you for the gift of your word and these stories that sometimes don't make sense. But when we really look at them, they speak directly to what we need to hear. Father, don't let us pass you by. Whether we've known you for years or we're still even skeptical about who you are, don't let us let you pass by. Give us the strength, Father, to reach out, to cry out, and say, Jesus, I choose you. Have mercy on me. And follow him with everything we've got. Amen.